Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. Today is Friday, November 13th. It is Friday the 13th, which some of us have forgotten, and Erica gladly reminded us. Mm-hmm. Um, ooh. <laughs> Today we have our first uh, we have our first snow here on the northern border of the United States. So I don't know if anybody else has the snoo, um, but we're getting into uh, winter time now. Um, so we have a full complement today joining me in our virtual studio from all around the planet: Doug, Erica, Tiffany, Gabby, and our special guest host Elliot. Welcome everybody. Hello. Hey. Hello. So today our. Uh, our general oh there's my windows. Our general topic <laughs> Our general topic today is connecting the dots. So we are gonna be going over a number of different things. Um we're just gonna kinda go through some of the items that have been in the news recently, uh some of the top stories related to health and wellness, alternative medicine. Um we've got some more silliness from the WHO uh on the on the board here today that Elliot's gonna tell us about. Um but we are gonna start it off um, since we don't bring in external content very much, we, we'd like to uh, mix it up a little bit, and we're going to play a, uh, a clip from YouTube that some of our listeners might have seen called Everything That We Think We Know About Addiction Is Wrong, uh, and it's quite a good um, little clip here. It's about uh, 5 minutes, 40 seconds, uh, and this, uh, if any of you have heard our, our past show about addiction, this kind of heralds back to some of the topics we were talking about there. Um, so we're going to play this for you guys just to kick off the discussion, and uh, we'll be back right after this, and then we will start talking about our other topics. What causes, say, heroin addiction? This is a really stupid question, right? It's obvious. We all know it. Heroin causes heroin addiction. Here's how it works. If you use heroin for 20 days, by day 21, your body would physically crave the drug ferociously because there are chemical hooks in the drug. That's what addiction means. But there's a catch. Almost everything we think we know about addiction is wrong. If you, for example, break your hip, you'll be taken to a hospital and you'll be given loads of diamorphine for weeks or even months. Diamorphine is heroin. It's in fact much stronger heroin than any addict can get on the street because it's not contaminated by all the stuff drug dealers dilute it with. There are people near you being given loads of deluxe heroin in hospitals right now. So at least some of them should become addicts. But this has been closely studied. It doesn't happen. Your grandmother wasn't turned into a junkie by her hip replacement. Why is that? Our current theory of addiction comes in part from a series of experiments that were carried out earlier in the 20th century. The experiment is simple. You take a rat and put it in a cage with two water bottles. One is just water, the other is water laced with heroin or cocaine. Almost every time you run this experiment, the rat will become obsessed with the drugged water and keep coming back for more and more until it kills itself. But in the 1970s, Bruce Alexander, a professor of psychology, noticed something odd about this experiment. The rat is put in the cage all alone. It has nothing to do but take the drugs. What would happen, he wondered, if we tried this differently? So he built Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats. 
It's a lush cage where the rats would have colored balls, tunnels to scamper down, plenty of friends to play with, and they could have loads of sex. Everything a rat about town could want. And they would have the drugged water and the normal water bottles. But here's the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, rats hardly ever use the drugged water. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. But maybe this is a quirk of rats, right? Well, helpfully, there was a human experiment along the same lines, the Vietnam War. 20% of American troops in Vietnam were using a lot of heroin. People back home were really panicked because they thought there would be hundreds of thousands of junkies on the streets of the United States when the war was over. But a study followed the soldiers home and found something striking. They didn't go to rehab. They didn't even go into withdrawal. 95% of them just stopped after they got home. If you believe the old theory of addiction, that makes no sense. But if you believe Professor Alexander's theory, it makes perfect sense. Because if you're put into a horrific jungle in a foreign country where you don't want to be, and you could be forced to kill or die at any moment, doing heroin is a great way to spend your time. But if you go back to your nice home with your friends and your family, it's the equivalent of being taken out of that first cage and put into a human rat park. It's not the chemicals, it's your cage. We need to think about addiction differently. Human beings have an innate need to bond and connect. When we are happy and healthy, we will bond with the people around us. But when we can't, because we're traumatized, isolated or beaten down by life, we will bond with something that gives us some sense of relief. It might be endlessly checking a smartphone, it might be pornography, video games, Reddit, gambling, or it might be cocaine. But we will bond with something because that is our human nature. The path out of unhealthy bonds is to form healthy bonds, to be connected to people you want to be present with. Addiction is just one symptom of the crisis of disconnection that's happening all around us. We all feel it. Since the 1950s, the average number of close friends an American has has been steadily declining. At the same time, the amount of floor space in their homes has been steadily increasing. To choose floor space over friends, to choose stuff over connection. The war on drugs we've been fighting for almost a century now has made everything worse. Instead of helping people heal and getting their life together, we have cast them out from society. We have made it harder for them to get jobs and become stable. We take benefits and support away from them if we catch them with drugs. We throw them in prison cells, which are literally cages. We put people who are not well in a situation that makes them feel worse and hate them for not recovering. For too long, we've talked only about individual recovery from addiction. But we need now to talk about social recovery, because something has gone wrong with us as a group. We have to build a society that looks a lot more like Rat Park and a lot less like those isolated cages. We are going to have to change the unnatural way we live and rediscover each other. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. This video is a collaboration with Johan Hari, the author of the book Chasing the Scream, the first and last days of the war on drugs. He was very kind to work with us on this video to spread the word. We recommend that you give the book a try. Our videos are made thanks to your support on Patreon.com. If you want to help us make more of them, we really appreciate your support. We made an interactive version of this video together with some friends. See the link in the description. All right, there you have it. So that's a, that's a short, sweet uh, summary of that concept. Um, but it, I think it's pretty fascinating. And 
the yeah. person who's been treating addiction a certain way for many, many years. Um, and I, I think it's kind of interesting that, you know, it, it hasn't become widely known until now that it's not actually the drug, it's the human connection uh, that fuels the addiction, uh, which makes sense, especially if you look at the way our society is going these days. Um, it reminds me of there's a book that I've mentioned on the show before called Alone Together, Why We Expect More from Technology and Less from Each Other. Uh, and that's quite a good book that talks about that, that, that we are forming these uh, insular bubbles around ourselves and cutting other people out from actual human connection that used to exist between friends, families, communities, things like that. So, yeah. I think it was interesting that part when he said that um, the Vietnam uh, soldiers came back and everybody was expecting there to be a bunch of junkies on the street, but 95% of them just stopped using heroin, didn't even have withdrawal. It makes me wonder, mm-hmm. like, yeah. what was going on with the other 5%? Like, maybe they went back to broken families or didn't, didn't have support or, you know, what was happening with them that they couldn't just stop. But yeah. 95% is pretty damn good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's nearly all of them. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if maybe, about- uh, I know some people kind of were joining the Army at that point just to kind of escape their own reality, like they didn't have um, a good social network to begin with, um, and were kind of, uh, you know, joining the Army as a, as a means of escape or as, uh, you know, some didn't know what else to do, were kind of in a, in a tight spot, and maybe when they came back, none of that really changed. They're coming back kind of a, to the same situation, so their addiction kind of stuck. I wonder what are the actual numbers right now, like people who came back from Iraq, you know, Afghanistan, how did they fare? You know, they use drugs, or because there are like very concerning numbers about post-traumatic stress disorder and mm-hmm. the use of drugs to veterans. You know, nowadays, not Vietnam, but nowadays. Yeah, well, I just actually watched a, a piece that was talking about how it's. I think it's 50% of, of veterans are uh, committing suicide at this point. So that right there shows you some, those are pretty shocking numbers. And it's like the. I, I think it was again 50%. 50% uh, higher su- suicide rates among veterans um, compared to the general public. Well, it could be the difference that they're coming back to texting and Facebooking and Instagramming yeah. versus like when the Vietnam vets came back, they didn't have all that stuff. So there are yeah. actual real social bonds that maybe they could go back to versus yeah. this fake kind of manufactured yeah. connecting with people on the Internet. Yeah. Yeah, well, the American course, think, society you know, is more broken down. Yeah. 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 I, mean, I think in general, any, any soldier will tell you um, that humans are not meant to kill. You know, whatever they might think about war or the justness of war or that kind of a thing or what their cause is, um, I think that they would say that, you know, humans are not meant to kill each other in these giant conflicts. Um, and that when you do do that, uh, it affects the mind in a really deeply profound way um, and causes a lot of issues. Um, I've had a number of friends that, that came back from Iraq and Afghanistan who were just different, you know, something, something tweaked deep down. Yeah, there was an article that was up on SOT. I forget the title of it, though, but they were saying, like, all of the studies that they do on veterans that come back from war and end up with uh, PTSD, like they never take into account that uh, the 
the war is actually what makes these people commit suicide or commit murders when they get out. They just focus on like demographic situations and their their gender or their income and things like that, and they never factor in like the horrors of war. Right. And also there was an article that came out about sleep disturbances being a new form of PTSD mm-hmm. in soldiers, so that that constant disruption of sleep patterns and they come back and, you know, they're suffering from not being able to sleep and that extremely raises the uh, opportunity for suicide. It's kind of like a um, a sleep, you know, uh, induced madness, like not not enough sleep. Yeah, yeah sleep deprivation can do yeah, that. Sleep deprivation. Hallucinations and delusions and... Well, one thing I yeah. found interesting in the, in the video is this whole idea that, um, you know, what causes addiction and how drugs cause addiction. So it's like that idea of the disease model of addiction. And um, there was an interesting book written recently by Mark Lewis. Uh, he's a Ph.D. Uh, he wrote a book in 2011 called uh, Memories of an Addicted Brain. And then he just recently released a book called The Biology of Desire, why addiction is not a disease. And he kind of goes into the whole idea that um, addiction is desire gone wrong, that the addict gets trapped into a various cycle of desire, use, disappointment, and repeat. He observes that loneliness, separation, and isolation all are a common factor at the start of many addiction stories, and that um, the drug only worsens this. And he does a really good job of describing how the, the National Institute of Health um, funds 90% of addiction research, and it doesn't make any sense when you consider other addictions like sex addiction or gambling or shopping because there's no drug to induce that disease, you know? And um, he talks about even things like relapse, like why do people relapse and uh you know, it's a part of your emotional software that hasn't been repaired. It's like that grooving in the brain. And uh, mm-hmm. you never erase those synapses in the brain um, that were there at one time. And uh, changes in the brain occur because of addiction. So it's like this cycle that goes round and round. Talks about the personality traits, especially people who have more of an impulsive personality trait or frustration tolerance or isolation. Mm-hmm. And and basically his point is that there's no addictive gene, you know, this whole idea that addiction can be genetic and um, it's more loop in the brain reinforcing synaptic connections. And 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 he does talk about Chasing the Scream uh, by Johan Hurry and how this whole disease model of addiction really needs to be looked at again. You know, like they talked about in the video, putting someone in a cage and a lot of prisoners are put in um, what you call sol- solitary confinement that, that mm-hmm. these issues are never going to be dealt with. It's just going to be perpetuating. And I wonder if that's not the intention. Yeah. When you look at society today, it's like intentionally a cage, like we live in a giant cage, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty fascinating topic. Um, I think, uh, I, I guess I would say most of our listeners have probably had some experience with it either personally or 
you know, with friends or family. And um, mm. so we, we all have kind of a data pool uh, to draw from when we're thinking about this. And I think it's something uh, good to keep in mind. You know, if somebody, like if you're struggling with it personally or if somebody that you know brings it up, um, you know, point them towards these resources and be like, look, hey, you know, you, you're not, like, broken. You know, you're not screwed up. Like, this is something that can be fixed. And you basically just need to, I'm simplifying here, but you need to find uh, friends and hang out more. <laughs> yeah. And no, push I, past I think it's actually that, a, that desire to be socially isolated. You know, like, there's so much shame associated with addiction that, you know, people uh, become even more introverted and, and, you know, as we talked about in our previous addiction show with Gabber Monte, it's like uh, they already know they're their worst enemy, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So compassion and understanding is. Yeah. And it's hard to have compassion and understanding for yourself if your family is uh, still going by this old model of tough love and they kick you out of the house and they won't let you come back for family gatherings and things like that, which is really just the opposite of what you should be doing. I know it can be difficult because a lot of times there's stuff involved with someone's trying to, their habit, like taking your DVD players and things like that and selling them for money. It's hard to be compassionate against someone or with someone who's like stealing your stuff. But mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe if at the beginning people can approach your relative from a place of compassion versus judgment and scorn, maybe some of those things can be thwarted. Yeah. I think it's also, there's there's like, you know, you can use this kind of as a way of uh, of kind of working on yourself too. Like I recently went through a move, uh, moving houses that was quite stressful. And I definitely noticed more of uh, an attraction to certain uh, like more, um, compulsive type behaviors. Um, I started eating a lot more dark chocolate than usual. Um, you know, I tried attracted to just kind of zoning out and like, you know, watching Netflix for a while and things like that. And it kind of like, you know, struck me that, okay, well, I'm, I'm undergoing stress right now. And I think what that's doing is kind of leading me to kind of draw back and have less of a connection with, uh, with, with, you know, my social peer group and that sort of thing. Um, and that is probably what was driving those kind of compulsive, um, uh, habits. So I think that, uh, you know, you can kind of uh, look at these things and be like, okay, why am I kind of like buying more dark chocolate than I usually do? Or, you know, because it doesn't have to be heroin, right? Like it, it, we all have these kind of like uh, habits that we lean more towards. And it might not be illicit drugs. It might not be alcohol. It might just be like, you know, watching too much Netflix or like zoning out on YouTube for a while or something like that. Like these these kinds of things can be looked at as kind of, but while they might not be actual addictions, they are kind of these sort of uh, um, habitual escapes, um, you know, that kind of replace the regular um, social connections. So I think that we, we can kind of look at these things and kind of look at our, our own life and what we're doing and kind of go, like, okay, well, you know, maybe instead of, of doing this uh, habitual uh, compulsive behavior, I can, you know, call up my parents or like hang out with, uh, with some friends or something like that and kind of connect a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But it's almost like that yep. isolation becomes that like ingrained pattern in the brain. Like if mm. you if you don't have people around you that are kind of noticing those behaviors as well, like if you're 
living alone and, and you're already dealing with these things and you know the 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 common question is oh how are you oh i'm fine mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. when, when in reality to be able to say i'm not fine i'm suffering mm. help me <laughs> yeah yeah and you know having a good uh peer group too who is kind of understanding because I think a lot of times when you start to talk about something that's somewhat uncomfortable or when somebody's going through a tough time, like a lot of people will just kind of be like, oh, you know, buck up. Don't worry about it. You know, um, I'm sure everything will be fine. Uh, you know, it, it, it kind of requires somebody to have a little bit more understanding. So having the right kind of, of social group in some place where you can actually network about your problems and, uh, and, uh, and, and actually connect, like have a meaningful connection. I think it's important too. Yeah, or or people say, yeah. "Oh, what are you depressed about? You got a great job, you make money, you live in a nice yeah. neighborhood. There's lots mm. of people who have it worse than you." <laughs> yeah. That's not yeah, that could be a cage on its own, a gilded cage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's well, you true. Know, I think that's a really with, good point. With um, oh, go you ahead, know, Erica. like uh, oh, our modern society. You know, I had a therapist tell me one time that especially for women, this idea of shopping, you know, buying a new yeah. pair of shoes or feeling down or a new dress that you'll never wear. <laughs> this this whole idea of social connection is like ingrained in us from time immemorial, getting together around the fire, sewing bees or cooking. And, and women don't have that now. So what do they do? They go to the mall, right? Because mm-hmm. they're trying to connect with others and everyone's doing the same kind of thing but they're all in their own little bubble buying spending and and it becomes Mm. again like a habit that that can be negative like i don't know if anyone has that friend that's got like 27 different types of shoes that they never wear (laughs) you know and 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 the joke is oh were you feeling a little depressed (laughs) those make you feel any better when the yeah. going gets tough, the tough yeah. goes shopping. shopping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of Gabor Maté when he was saying that uh, he had an addiction to buying classical music. He'd be going out and buying, you know, spending thousands of dollars on like the latest classical release or like old, uh, um, you know, classics that he was he was picking up. It's the same kind of thing, you know. It just it's it's just another form of this disconnection. And then hiding it from his wife, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So he knew yeah. it was an addictive tendency, but he did it anyway. Even even he was talking himself through it. Like he would he would say, "Oh, I'm now I'm doing this," and then he'd come home and he'd hide it all so his wife didn't know. You know. Yeah. I love I love the way he admits that he's no different from his patients because he was seeing addictive patients. You know, heroin, hardcore drug users, and he admitted, "I'm not any different." You know, so we cannot yeah. judge them. Yeah, totally. Erica, to your point about um, isolation becoming a pattern, I can speak to that, too. I I lived alone uh, for many years, and, um, you know, before I had come across any of this material or started to, like, revise revise my diet or anything like that, um, that's how it worked for me. Uh, You know, I I lived alone, and so after a while, it became kind of a rut, and I thought that I preferred living alone. And so I would get mm-hmm. into these patterns of, like, that was when, I don't know if you guys remember when Blockbuster Video started to rent, you could get, like, three movies at a time. And then, mm-hmm. you know, for, a, for like, a set rate, and then you could bring them back and get three more. It was kind of like a Netflix thing, but they were doing it at Blockbuster. And I was just yeah, watching I remember movies, that. And movies and movies. 
yeah, I amassed a Herculean DVD collection that was just ridiculous that I'm actually kind of embarrassed about now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it just turned into a rut. And then when I got roommates uh, and, you know, um, my girlfriend and I moved in together a number of years after that, I realized, whoa, like, you know, living with people and having a human connection on a daily basis, this is actually really cool. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, it just takes uh, it takes a shift of your your paradigm to get out of that. Yeah, I went through a similar thing, too. I was living alone for quite some time, and I, I found that I was, um, you know, my, my home became my sanctuary, you know, like go out there, deal with all the stresses during the day, and then come back and kind of isolate myself and get on the Internet and, and whatever else. And, uh, you know, it was even when I was going to um, move in with uh, with roommates, there was a lot of resistance to that in me. It's like, oh, no, I'm going to give up my personal mm-hmm. space. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to have this uh, this means of isolating myself anymore. And it was like you know, getting out of that pattern, it really took kind of a shift. You know, I was kind of like, you know what, at the end of the day, I think that this is going to be better for me. And I, I'm sure I'll still have time to kind of like, you know, I'll have my own room. I can kind of go and close the door if I really want to, um, which actually I didn't end up doing, like hardly ever. Mm-hmm. I actually found that I really thrive on uh, on social connection a lot more than I anticipated. So, yeah, it, it, it is, there is definitely a pattern of isolation. Uh, and it does take kind of a shift in attitude to really... Uh, really kind of um, see see that for what it is and maybe try and escape it. Yeah, I've worked yeah, some I mean, stressful it's... jobs in my day, and there was a distinct difference between coming home to an empty house after a stressful day versus coming home to a house where there was somebody where you had some kind of emotional connection. It just mm-hmm. your sucky job or your, your stressful <laughs> day. Just I mean, you could get through it. Versus just coming home by yourself and just ruminating and ruminating and not being yeah. able to sleep. But being with somebody, having somebody there that you could talk to really made a lot of difference. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Well, let's, uh, let's shift gears a little bit since we're connecting the dots today. We're going to have to get comfortable with kind of bouncing around topics a little bit. Um, but we have another one. Uh, this uh, I had mentioned at the beginning some more silliness from the WHO. Um, and Elliot, do you want to fill us in on that? It's this is a really, really ridiculous one. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, the article's uh, it's titled "What's Next?" Uh, the World Health Organization set to classify aging as a disease to benefit big pharma. Oh man. Yeah. So this is on. Uh, this is on the shot. It was. Um, it was published a few days ago, on the 11th of November, and um, yeah, it, it basically um, it goes on to say, um, in what many critics are calling lunacy of unimaginable unimaginable proportions, the World Health Organization now plans to lay down the framework that will set the precedent for classifying aging something that should be embraced and celebrated into a disease with elaborate protocols expected to be finalized in 2018. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, there's basically a paper that's been recently published in the um, in Frontiers in Genetics, and scientists at Ilsilco, in Silco Medicine are now highlighting the need for more granular and applied classification of aging in the context of the 11th World Health Organization's International Statistical Classification 
of diseases and related health problems. So that's basically like a, a standard diagnostic tool that they use to um, to classify different diseases. And um, this is expected to be finalised uh, in just over two years. So the new one's coming out. It's the eleventh one, and um, and the report calls for creating a task force of scientists to more thoroughly evaluate whether, um, whether to provide a more granular and actionable classification of ageing as a disease. Um, yeah, so what they're basically trying to do is, um, is now claim that ageing, which is a natural process, um, it's actually going to be classified um, as, as a disease. Mm. <laughs> um, That's pretty well. Yeah. Along yeah, with smoking and bacon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Unofficially yeah. aging, it already is considered a disease because I can't name like one old person with the exception of maybe one who doesn't take any kind of medication. But mm. in this whole article, they never say like, what are they going to do to stop this disease besides give people like more drugs or something? I mean, yeah, what are the protocols? Plan? Yeah. yeah. That's one of the aids. Give them more drugs. Yeah, They're going to have sure an anti-aging vaccine, I suppose. <laughs> this is going to be a, a boon for people with Munchausen's. They'll be like, I have the aging. Doc, you got to help me. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, um, it says um, this is basically an effort to create possibly dozens of new more uh, of more new drugs. Um, age-related processes that are, are basically just normal processes, but um, but yeah, they're going to try classify it as as, as disease-related, and uh, and I guess to try and make make a lot of money out of it. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, That's the motivation. Yeah. Everything has just gone back. completely bonkers. I mean, aging is a disease now. So is living going to be a disease next? <laughs> I mean, I'm alive. I mean, give me some yeah. drugs. <laughs> yeah. Well, it just it, it, it just delegitimizes the the WHO once again. I mean, we were talking about on a previous program about how their their whole red meat study and how what a farce that was, and now they're turning around and trying to classify aging as a disease, which just defies all logic. You know, so it's kind of like, who are these guys? Like, what? You know, why is anybody listening to anything that they have to say? It's just ridiculous. They're vampires. <laughs> yeah. They're going charge of the blood bank. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, Precisely. Can we? Of the other people that I know that sorry that don't take prescription drugs, most of them do. Well, just like keeping experience. But those that don't do. They look incredibly like they fare incredibly well, especially mm. because they're giving statin drugs, low cholesterol, low cholesterol, lowering cholesterol drugs, which make them so fatigued and speed up their dementia, and you know it's crazy. Yeah, like, it screws their quality of life basically. Yeah, and I think we all know kind of the the actual cure for for a lot of these. Uh, um, things that are, are termed kind of normal parts of aging, um, like how much diet actually plays a role in that. You know, getting yourself onto a paleo-ketogenic diet 
it, it solves so many of these problems. You know, you're producing less, fewer free radicals, so you're causing less damage in your body. You got, you know, you, you have this youthful appearance because you're not having all these, uh, these kind of quote unquote normal processes of aging where all of your body parts start kind of breaking down. So, I mean, it, it, the idea that a drug can replace um, these these types of things that could could actually be addressed with with diet and you know toxic exposure and all these sorts of things. It's just it's so it's it's such a farce. And even if you don't follow a paleo or ketogenic diet and you're still eating you know just standard food or whatever and you're older, it's still better than taking drugs mm-hmm. yeah. to treat so-called yeah. diseases. Because yeah. my mother, <laughs> for example, she's in her sixties. And she has a few problems, nothing serious. I mean, she doesn't follow any special diet or anything, but she doesn't take any medications whatsoever. And, mm. I mean, I'm saying this because she's my mother, but she's so cute and her skin is like butter. <laughs> she still has quality of life, even if she's not following the diet. I mean, she doesn't, I mean, she's about, or maybe even a little bit more paranoid about the medical <laughs> industry than I am. So, <laughs> yes. And this is a generation, people who are now 70 years old, 80 years old, this is a generation which grew up on meat, fat, you know, pork, you know, lard. <laughs> they have very good epigenetics. Like, I've seen this pattern in the region where I practice, which is the, the most uh, in Spain. It has the elderly, you know, population, uh, the oldest, eldest, uh, oldest population. And uh, they have very good epigenetics. Their daughters and grandchildren, they don't seem to be as healthy as they are. So mm. that is concerning, too. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, really, it's the same on thing that. With, um, oh, I was just going to say it's the same thing with my folks, too. They're, um, you know, they, they grew up, let's see, my dad was 18 in 1955, so, you know, in the in the 50s, and they eat that kind of standard, you know, meat and potatoes pork, beef, yeah. chicken, that kind of thing. Bacon and, and eggs um, still in the morning? Yeah. <laughs> they don't take a lot. I think that they might take a few um, prescriptions, but, you know, like my mom, the doctor tried to put her on statins, and she said no. Um, and they're slowing down a little bit, but they are, you know, they ride mountain bikes, and they're active. And, yeah, I mean, you know, if you at least stay away from, like, processed foods and this plethora of drugs that you're trying to get people on, you can you can live a relatively healthy, healthy life. Yeah. yeah, I see that in my family as well. Um, uh, my grandmother on my father's side, um, she uh, she basically um, she uh, she started eating lots of vegetable oils. Um, she cut out all animal products. I mean, mm. she uh, she kept a limited amount of red meat in her diet. And this was like thirty years ago or something. She started taking. Um, she was taking aspirin when it was mm. said that said that aspirin was good for the health. Um, she she eats a diet high in fruit and vegetables, and um, and now she's uh, she she got crippling arthritis, mm. and uh, she's mm. really brittle, has very little energy. Whereas my grandmother on my mother's side, <laughs> she never she never um, took any notice of the uh, of the dietary <laughs> guidelines, and she basically stuck to potatoes, lots of butter, bacon, <laughs> sausage. She's a chain smoker, <laughs> and uh, and you know she she's. she's in, I mean, you you wouldn't be able to tell, but um, yeah, she's better than she's been in 
in years. Mm-hmm. Um, when you compare the two of them, uh, you you really see a difference. Like, I don't know how long this she's going to live. You know? <laughs> she's doing great. Wow. <laughs> great. Yeah, the yeah, whole epigenetic thing is very interesting too. Like the way it, it's, you know, there was an article on SOT a while ago, and I unfortunately I don't have it in front of me. I don't remember what it was called, but it was talking about how um, what a, a strong role um, epigenetics play in all of this, and how it's actually more um, in line with what your grandparents ate than uh, than what you're eating, or at least you're setting your, you know, what what your grandparents ate actually sets the stage. Um, so it's like, you know, if you kind of start eating a standard American diet, but your grandparents and your parents were actually eating a, a fairly healthy diet, um, then you uh, will kind of be more resistant to uh, these, these, this degradation of health than um, somebody whose grandparents started getting on the whole processed food bandwagon, started eating a lot of trans fats and all that sort of stuff, um, then you're already kind of on a weakened platform. Um, so if you start eating all this crap, then your health starts going downhill a lot faster than what you maybe saw your grandparents or your great-grandparents do. So, I mean, we can see this, you know, with, uh, with all these, um, you know, kids coming out with the diseases that uh, previously only adults would come out with. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because they're, they're, you know, it's, it's kind of like a generational degradation as more and more people over time get onto this crappy diet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So maybe like in a few generations now, I mean, if people can even actually have children anymore, like yeah. you'll be born and then the next minute you just drop dead because yeah. your epigenetics are so screwed. Yeah, That is interesting because in the fertility um, consultations, you know, there is really a lot of people, at least here locally, uh, young men with very low testosterone levels, like, you know, very young women who cannot, you know, ovulate so they can conceive, you know, it's like, it's pretty bad from my point of view. Yeah. yeah. Mm. No, fertility is a big me. issue. Yeah. That reminds me of something that um, uh, Dr. Tent, uh, who is a uh, chiropractor, holistic guy from uh, Michigan, we've mentioned him before. Um, he, in his lectures, he talks about when he has women who are pregnant come into his clinic that um, you need, I think it's 98 different uh, compounds, you know, vitamins, minerals, uh, different things to support a healthy pregnancy. And even um, fertility doctors are putting women on like five things. And mm-hmm. he's like, you know, I, I, I can grow a worm with five things, you know, but a human needs nine, these 98 things to grow properly and People are not getting that in their diet, and so if their children are unhealthy, like you said, the epigenetic uh, progression, you know, then their children are going to be even more unhealthy, and I'm really curious where this is going to go. Well, we already see where it's going with all these kids yeah. coming down with diseases. you got, like, you know, teenagers with uh, type 2 diabetes, and uh, it's just uh, it, it's chaos. It's just complete degradation of the human race. Perhaps yeah, with 50% right now. Oh, Oh, go on, Gabby. No, I was just going to say that perhaps that is the aim because now the elderly, you know, which is like best epigenetic, epigenetically speaking, they're getting drugged with psychiatric drugs because they complained and they, they're giving antipsychotics to, to shut them down. You know, imagine how mm-hmm. it's going to be in a few generations. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, I was just going to mention, too, the child cancer rate is like 50%. It's like lymphomas and, and, you know, environmental-induced cancers in small children, you know? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, that that brings me to another uh, article on our list here, um, which kind of ties into what we're talking about, that uh, why Americans no longer trust the government's food guidelines. And uh, I'll just read a few excerpts from here. Um, Over the past 30 years, the dietary guidelines for Americans have become as bloated as the nation's collective waistline, serving up a thick (laughs) brew of revolving door nutrition advice, confusing messages, and perhaps even politically influenced eating recommendations. And I think that that's a really good point. Um, It says here, uh, for the guidelines to have any credibility, they must be free from political wrangling. The The 2015 guidelines, which are due out by the end of the year, are already far off track. In a last-ditch effort to keep politics out of the final guidelines, the House Agriculture Committee held a hearing last week to examine how the process of developing updated nutrition advice became so ideological. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just I thought that, that was really interesting that that uh, that we brought ideology into what should be an objective um, biological assessment of what we should be eating. You know, political ideology should not necessarily affect um, science, although obviously we see that it does. And diet is science. You know, what you put in your body, what your optimum fuel is, um, what makes you work and and function uh, is not up to your beliefs. It's up to what your body works on. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting in that uh, that article that they say that the the report received more than 29,000 public comments, including from some who believe the new scientific research had had been overlooked. So I thought that was very interesting. It's kind of like the public is starting to wake up and starting to realize that these uh, that these guidelines maybe aren't very relevant. Yeah, yeah. they didn't receive our comments, so I'm pretty sure it was going to be much more. <laughs> mm, yeah. I mean, even even South Park made fun of the food pyramid. I think it was last yeah. year. You might cross the line when that happens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was. I mean, it's uh, it's really not. No, it's. I was just going to say, you know, it's not difficult. Um, it's not difficult to see that um, that there's something terribly wrong with the um, with the dietary guidelines because uh, because of all of the disease and the health issues, especially in America. I mean, you've you've got the cancer rates and um, diabetes rates. All of these uh, these health conditions are, are gradually just you know skyrocketing, and yet um, and yet and yet we we're following the same diet as as you know as we have done for the past twenty thirty years. So it's, I was just going to say it's really not too difficult to um, to see that there's something wrong with it, you know. You know, yeah. Elliot, I think for me it's so glaringly obvious that I'm still like you know puzzled. To the fact that most people cannot make connect those two dots, you know, mm-hmm. they cannot make the connection. You know, it's to me like what, <laughs> like what, in what reality are you living? You know. <laughs> yeah. Sure. And what's really kind of scary about it, just overall, is that we as human beings have to be told what to eat. Like, how mm-hmm. disconnected from nature do we have to be to have? People have to tell us, okay, you should eat this and you should eat that. I mean, it shouldn't even be something that someone has to guide you on. I mean, if we were really connected with nature, 
we would know, okay, my uncle is a hunter. He brings us home meat. We eat the meat. We eat the fat. My grandma has a garden. Mm. We eat what grows out of her garden. There shouldn't really be anything else, but it just, you know, mm-hmm. the world is just so screwed up. I guess we've gotten to a point where, you know, we have to have like 571 pages of guidelines to tell us <laughs> what to eat. Yeah. Well, Gabby, Gabby, to your point about that, um, you know, that people can't connect the dots, I was just thinking back to my own experience, and um, I think that, you know, it's experiential. Like, people have to have that experience in order to connect the dots because when you are, um, and I'm not talking about, like, occasionally cheating or something like that, but when you're eating a crappy diet every day, all day long, um, your brain does not work at its full peak potential. And so these, you know, connections... Um, that are there are, are not made automatically. And so right. it takes some experimentation and trying out of different things. And the way I found too, um, with my own diet, like that I changed it. And now, um, when I cheat, uh, I notice right away, I get inflammation, mm-hmm. I get tight, I get a headache, you know, um, everything feels off. I am sluggish, I'm bloated. Um, so those negative, the negative impacts are readily apparent and I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, that's why. Um, but I think when yeah. you're doing it on a constant yeah. basis, you, you know, pardon my French, but you just feel like shit all the time. Um, yeah. Then, you know, then, then you don't know anything different. Yeah, you don't make that connection. You know, especially when you look at the landscape of what people are surrounded by, like walk into a grocery store. And, you know, if I walk into a grocery store, I know that like 95% of the stuff in there is not something that I want to put into my body. But how many people actually understand that? Like actually, you know, really know that. Like how many of the things are marketed as healthy when, you know, we actually know that they're incredibly unhealthy, you know, and it's it's such an unnatural environment for somebody to be put in to actually recognize that um, the stuff that they're they're being presented as being food and being healthy is actually something that they have to, you know, disregard, that they have to kind of go against the uh, the the inertia that's that's kind of built in. Um, it, it it just makes for uh, an incredibly difficult situation for somebody who isn't used to having to make these kind of difficult decisions. You know, putting them into this this uh, landscape where they need to in order to be healthy. It's it, it's incredibly difficult to do. So I, I you know I really feel for people these days. And it goes back to that isolation thing that we talked about with addiction. You know, if you don't have anybody in your life where you're sharing information with. And you walk into a grocery store and your brain automatically goes to the crappy junk food aisle. You know, there's not that support there to say, "Mm, you might not want to eat that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it, it becomes like this, you know, repeating pattern. And like you said, Jonathan, you know, your brain doesn't work right. And then you're just like, oh, forget it. I'll just get the Doritos or whatever, you know, and then and then you're hooked. Yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't, totally. it doesn't even have to be Doritos, you know. It can be kind of like, oh, I just saw this commercial that said this yogurt is really healthy. So I'm going to get this yogurt. And, oh, look, it's sugar-free. It has all these artificial sweeteners in it. So it's nice and sweet, but it's not going to, you know, affect my waistline. You know, it's just such disinformation where people, even people who think they're making healthy choices are making absolutely horrible choices. Grandparents, yeah. you know, are forced to eat yogurts for the, for their bones, you know, when they actually hate it, oh, you know, uh, it's funny. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, like, I would even suggest, and this may sound 
uh, kind of messed up. But uh, um, and I, I guess a lot of us who have changed our diet to more of like paleo or ketogenic side of things have done this already, so we've had this experience. But if you haven't, and you just like have changed your diet and you notice you're feeling better, if you want like a reminder, cheat. You know, like try it out. <laughs> eat, eat, eat burritos and pizza and burgers for a week and see how you feel, and it, you will be reminded of what that's like. For a day, you know? just do it for a day, one meal. Yeah. That'll be enough. <laughs> yeah. Never mind a week. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I guess it is well, experiential uh, in in that sense, then, isn't it? Because um, it takes a certain degree of suffering for 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 some people to to sort of. Um, to really change change the way that they live, change their uh, their diet, mm. um, and I think it especially does help. Um, say when you're um, adapted to ketosis or you're uh, eating a Paleolithic diet, um, when you do cheat, when you do eat that, <laughs> that bit too much chocolate or or whatever, you um, yeah, you really feel it the next day, and then it get. I, I feel like it gives you. Um, it gives you more um, more drive to 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 stick to the diet, you know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, kind of like yeah. we were talking about addiction earlier. It's it's kind of like a relapse, you know. It's like if yeah. you're uh, yeah. if you're an alcoholic and then you're sober for a while and then you get wasted and you have a hangover, you're like, that's why I don't do that anymore, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think occasionally we 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 kind of need that. Some of us do. Um, Mm-hmm. I know, I know. It certainly benefits me when that happens. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, particularly at the beginning, I think, you know, it just reinforces what you're doing and why you're doing it. Yeah. Yeah, because at that point, it's not just some book knowledge. Your body is actually telling you, physically and in so many signs, that you know Doritos suck. <laughs> <laughs> and they're addictive. And they're addictive yeah. I don't like Doritos. <laughs> I love really? that Doritos have been our go-to on this. You know, Doritos, Doritos yeah. are just like the ultimate evil. Well, poor, they're chemically created to be that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, we've talked about that before on the show. They are a scientific. Uh, you know, they put their scientific knowledge into making them as addictive, and uh, you know, bitch can't eat just one. Well, no kidding. Yeah. Well, there's a book out about it, if anyone's in- interested. It's called The Dorito Effect. <laughs> uh, oh, well. The invested money on that. Yeah, they probably made Yeah, well, they just talk about the whole chemical synthesizing process of appealing to people's uh, sense of taste mm-hmm. and how they mm-hmm. manipulate everything to the full extent in, in a lab. And, yeah, it's it's quite frightening. It's almost like the super villains from like the comic book stories that make drugs like to get us like to get Gotham City addicted to a drug and they're like, I will rule the city, you know. Doritos. Yeah. It was based in real facts. <laughs> yeah. But it's no wonder that the you know that that you know this article is talking about how how people just don't trust these guidelines anymore. You know, this this is the kind of thing that they're they're pushing, and like you know, people can just look around them. You know, it, people who are actually aware and take a look at what's going on. And be like, you know what? These, these dietary recommendations don't seem to have been helping us too much. You know, it even says in the article there was uh, 
one representative named Peterson who said, you know, why are we even doing this? Most of my constituents don't believe this stuff anymore. You've lost your credibility with a lot of people and they are flat out ignoring this stuff. It's just, it's no, it's no wonder. Yeah. That makes me think of something I think is an important point that while we often kind of throw around the word sheeple, which uh, I could go either way on. It's, it applies in some contexts and other contexts. I think it's just derogatory and, and it, it, uh, it doesn't really help. Um, but at the same time, you know, thinking about that, there are a lot of authoritarian followers who will just do what they're told. And there are still quite a few people who, like you said, are, are you know, they're like, well, I followed the guidelines and I feel like crap. And, you know, this doesn't make any sense. And so people are starting to, they're, they're having their critical reasoning kick in whether they want to or not because they can't avoid it. Um, yeah. I don't know. You know, I... I we're not in the midst of like a mass, you know, uh, health revolution or anything right now, but I do have some faith that there are still quite a few people who, um, who are like, no, this is, this is crap. It's not working. Mm. That, that made me think also when we were talking about the, uh, the WHO and the doctors, um, I mean, like, you know, being a doctor does not automatically make you a villain. Of course, uh, I think we all have known and do know good doctors who are who are actually in it to help people, who are looking up new ways to do things, or going back to the old ways of doing things, and they're like what works and what doesn't, mm. and are not like towing the party line. There still are quite a few of those doctors out there. However, at the same time, there is this kind of mass that's um, a form of mental illness. You know, that just follows authority and says, "Okay, well, the book says this, so I'm going to do it." and doesn't look at any of the objective results of what's happening. Yeah, exactly. It, it's, an, it's, it's an unfortunate uh, state that we're in right now. I think that's happening yeah. all across the board with, with food, with medicine, with politics, you know, energy, everything. Yeah. And, you know, when you do have somebody who is kind of more inclined to just kind of follow an authority, they, you, you have to look at the authority that they're actually following. You know, so many of these these doctors will just flat out say, oh, no, no, diet has absolutely nothing to do with this. And it, and it's like, you know, they'll believe that. They'll say, okay, my doctor said that the diet has nothing to do with this, so I'll go on this medication that he's recommending. And it just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a closed loop. You know, there's no new information coming in there, or the doctors are just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's part of their job is, is, is just kind of uh, towing the party line in a lot of senses. Mm-hmm discouraging yeah. real research, you know, some even tell, you know, don't look to the, the internet, mm. you know, for this stuff, you know, you can only look for yeah. official guidelines. And it reinforces, you know, blind spots, you know. For me, it is really surprising to see how can someone start, start um, a lowering cholesterol drug and then, you know, progressively get worse in front of your eyes. And the doctor mm. cannot be able to see that, yeah. you know. They will yeah. actually look at the numbers in the lab test. They will see that it has lower cholesterol and will say, you are great. And yeah. the person in front of him or her will look, you know, absolutely so screwed up. They will not be able to see it because they're so blind. It's incredible. Yeah. Gabby, what do you see in, in your profession? I mean, I'm not prompting you to trash talk your, your colleagues, of course, um, but I guess just what, <laughs> what do you... What do you think is like a general percentage of, of what you see on a day-to-day of independently thinking doctors versus ones who just kind of toe the party line? 
Oh, that's difficult because I do several different uh, experiences. For example, I noticed that people in the emergency room, they are more against pharmaceutical companies, you know, and mm. in, in fairness, you know, real medicine or at least the best application of modern medicine right now is in the emergency room. Um, mm. Then, but on the other hand, all the other doctors that should be doing preventive medicine, like even for basic stuff such as um, osteoporosis, you know, it's just like, you know, it's very difficult to break through the authoritarian guidelines. Very, very few would actually think. And even when I do talks, and I have the, I have made talks about the diet, you know, the official guidelines, and all very well referenced. You know, I, I use very mainstream resources, and it will surprise me how difficult it is for them to grasp very basic concepts that the general public will grasp immediately. You know, so mm. I'm not sure. Mm. You know, it's scary. You know. <laughs> That's basically. <laughs> Wow. That is an interesting phenomenon. That it, it seems like in mm. in some percentage of cases, common sense kind of goes out the window. Hmm. Yeah. I guess it's just so ingrained, isn't it? So it's it's. I guess if your whole career is based on these certain principles that you believe to be true, uh, being told that they're not true, uh, or they're based on false premises, it's it's kind of. Uh, I can imagine it. It's difficult. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like their common sense was beaten out of them during medical school and their residency because <laughs> it's kind of a form sure. of hazing. Like a lot of yeah. stories, like they're keeping them up at all hours. They have to work all these overnight shifts and be on call for like three days in a row or something crazy like that. And, you know, they can't really go against their all wise and all knowing, you know, medical professors because they'll just be shot down. Mm-hmm. I always say that going through all of that, it's like, it's traumatic, you know, it's literally, yeah. it makes you like PTSD, so then you're mm-hmm. more vulnerable <laughs> to be programmed, you know, it's really a tragedy, really, like, <laughs> you know. That's, that's kind of like uh, military training. I was saying the same yeah. thing. How they, yeah. they yeah. de- uh, individualize you, mm-hmm. and then they, they break your character down, and then they, they essentially mold you into serving whichever purpose they they want and i guess i guess that applies here doesn't it mm. mm-hmm. yeah it's it's yeah, it's, kind of, it's kind of like colin ross talks about the depatterning just without the hallucinogens and the electroshock <laughs> <laughs> well let's uh let's see let's switch gears a little bit but not too much here uh we have another article um, and we are going to wade into the boiling water of vaccine discussion. Um, there's an article here. Flu- <laughs> I know. <laughs> put your put your armor on. Flu vaccine <laughs> madness. FDA expediting approval for deadly flu shot linked to autoimmune disorders, paralysis, and death. Um, this is from Vaccine News. Uh, last week, vaccine, Vaccines.News published a snippet about the FDA fast-tracking an incredibly dangerous flu vaccine called Fluad. Uh, the piece generated a lot of buzz, prompting us to provide our readers with the full scoop. Uh, it says here, officials from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration have decided to accelerate the license of a flu vaccine geared for use in seniors over the age of 65, and also one that has been linked to at least 13 deaths last year. 
prompting several countries to temporarily suspend vaccine lots containing the drug. Uh, the fact that the FDA is fast-tracking this vaccine is a mystery, as that approval process is typically reserved for emergencies during vaccine shortages. Mm. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I, I don't know. I guess personally I think that's a little short-sighted of the article to say that, that it's a mystery. Um, because, you know, anytime a, anytime a billion-dollar corporation is going to make another 2 or $3 billion, it's not a mystery as to why they're going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to add a little bit about that vaccine, too. Um, the uh, Swiss company Novartis created it, the flu ad, and um, kind of what the controversy is over it is this uh, squalene adjutant at, that that's added to it, and basically, you know, it's added to enhance the body's immune system response. Um, but with any adjuvant, it's pretty toxic, and um, it's added, you know, as a cost-effective way to increase the antibody titers using fewer antigens, allegedly. But, um, you know, for those of our listeners who haven't had a chance to listen to our show about the additives in vaccines that we did several months past, squalene um, creates an extremely strong antibody response that may cause death in some people, and that's probably why these deaths were happening. But, uh, you know, your immune system recognizes squalene as an oil molecule, and it's actually naturally part of the body. It's found throughout your brain and nervous system. Uh, when you consume squalene in products like olive oil, you know, your immune system will recognize it. But when you, um, and, and it will recognize its antioxidant properties. The difference between good and bad squalene is that uh, the route by which it enters your body. So injection squalene is uh, an abnormal route of entry. And basically it incites your immune system to attack, attack all the squalene in your body. Mm. And your your immune system will attempt to destroy the molecule wherever it finds it, so including places uh, where it occurs naturally. Mm. So um, in the article, there was a comment about Gulf War syndrome. And, um, you know, soldiers during the Gulf War were given this uh, anthrax vaccine, which had squalene in it, and mm. it was actually unapproved. So it was a experimental vaccine that they were using on, on Gulf War soldiers and vets. And, you know, there was a clear established link between the uh, contaminated product and Gulf War sufferers. And, you know, some of the symptoms included arthritis, fibromyalgia, um, chronic fatigue, chronic headaches, abnormal body hair loss lesions, dizziness, weakness, memory loss, seizures, mood changes, um, ALS, uh, you know, just chronic diarrhea, night sweats, and low-grade fevers. So, you know, it's pretty scary stuff that that it's bypassing. You know, it's being fast-tracked when mm -hmm. there are studies showing that, that, you know, there's really detrimental side effects. Mm -hmm. I want oh, yeah, to put on my tinfoil hat here for a moment. <laughs> um, they said this flu vaccine was geared toward, for people that are over 65 years old. 
um, and the FDA is fast-tracking it, but also it came out that the uh, Social Security Administration is not doing a cost-of-living raise this year for people in Social Security. So mm. I'm thinking, hmm, they're pushing this vaccine onto people, onto elderly <laughs> senior citizens. Is it because they don't want to pay them out their Social Security benefits? Yeah. I don't know, that's just my little tinfoil hat moment. I don't know, it's not too bad. <laughs> yeah, well, it's uh, 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 oh, oh, go, go on, ahead, Jonathan. Oh, I was just going to say, well, you know, the, the the in the article they talked about how there was 13 deaths and how European countries actually stopped giving the vaccine. So I think it said on November 29th, 2014, the number was at 11 of people who died from it. But you know, this whole idea that they knowingly give this to people and maybe because they don't want to have to pay Social Security <laughs> or, you know, it's going to be in the new death uh, disease mm. WHO recommendation. I don't know. Population but, culling. But this whole idea that, you know, and we've talked about this in the past, this National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, for those who don't know about it, you know, this, uh, according to Health Impact News, um, drug manufacturers threatened to stop manufacturing vaccines if they were not granted legal immunity from damages due to vaccines. It was no longer profitable for them to continue manufacturing vaccines in a free market because of the large amount of lawsuits for injuries and death. So instead of requiring drug companies to produce safer vaccines, Congress granted them total immunity from civil litigation due to injuries or death resulting. So today, oh. one cannot sue drug companies for damages or deaths due to vaccines. You have to sue the federal government and try to get some of the funds set aside from this Vaccine Injury Compensation Trust Fund that, get this, your tax dollars pay for to begin mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's a setup. Yeah. So the drug companies really don't have anything to lose by producing a, a crappy product. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. That's in fact what they did. Yes. Yeah, and so in the in the article, and we've talked about Dr. Russell Blaylock in the past, but he said no one should take the flu vaccine. It is one of the most dangerous vaccines ever devised. It contains squalene and has been shown to cause severe autoimmune disorders such as MS, rheumatoid arthritis, and lupus. This vaccine adjuvant that is strongly linked to Gulf War syndrome, which killed over 10,000 soldiers and caused a 200% increase in the fatal disease ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. Well, yeah, I wonder if this year we're going to see another explosion of the, I guess you'd call them the vaccine wars, Kind of like we saw mm-hmm. last year, um, you know, when, when the vaccine season kind of comes into play, it seems like the discussion gets ramped up and um, the really really virulent attacks come out of the woodwork. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're already see seeing it. Week. We're definitely yeah. seeing it. There was an article on the Puppet Masters section of Signs of the Times on November 10th about Internet trolls and anyone mm-hmm. resisting the vaccine party line as a target. And basically, that's exactly what's happening. 
you know, these doctors like David Gorski, MD, they call him ORAC, they get on these sites and they basically just um, ruin people. They go slandering and, mm. you know, just tearing people down, um, going after personal character assassination and whatnot, and never have any, basically the the article said they're long on insult and short on science. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yep. Yeah, it's gotten to the point where you can't even mention any kind of, you know, anti-vaccine statements or anything on your social media or anything like that because you'll, you, you know, the people are just so brainwashed and so virulent on on this subject that you'll just get, you know, trashed, attacked, smeared. Like it doesn't even take these paid trolls, you know. In, in a lot of cases, it's just uh, you know people who are quote unquote your friends or family members, or something like that. The, the brainwashing is so complete that it's just any anything where it's kind of like, oh, you might want to reconsider taking that vaccine. Well, forget it. You know, you're you're just completely smeared as some kind of quack, and that you're uh, you know you're you're a danger to society. It's just I don't even bother anymore. Yeah, I completely yeah. agree. I've I've uh, I've experienced that on a number of times as well, and I think. Um, it kind of reminds me of that um, the quote in the film. It was the first one of the Matrix. It was um, it was something that Morpheus said, and he said something along along the lines of um, um, these these people are so sort of embedded in the Matrix that they will fight to protect it. Yeah, it's almost as if mm-hmm. um, their 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 construction of reality or yeah, their their view of reality is so dependent on um, on some of these things that if you um, if 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 you if you provide them with some information that um, that essentially um, it's a, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I've lost my words. Yeah, if if you say something that um, that goes against that, then uh, yeah, they'll 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 attack you for it. Yeah, I think it's like it comes back way, to it's kind of like right? it's kind of like uh, saying something disparaging against somebody's religion because this whole vaccine thing is it's kind of like a religion. It's just all based on myth and it's not scientific whatsoever. But people just cling to it, like if mm. they let go of it, their world would fall apart. Yeah. I think because people are so programmed to go off when you're going against vaccines that they don't, you know, stop thinking. I decided to mm-hmm. take a different approach in my last talk, you know, for physicians. It was very well received, but I approached it the following way. I first talked about the origins of the HPV vaccine, which we talked briefly in one of the previous shows. It was a scientific article written by scholars from the University of Texas. They documented human rights violations and ethical violations in this trial. And uh, you cannot deny that, you know, it's very well documented, you know. So this was in the 80s when, when they started the test. And adverse effects events were discouraged. They were hidden under the rug. And then you can present the data of the adverse effects of the HPV vaccine nowadays. You know, like it makes total sense because 
they were now there were no safety you know protocols to begin with like you know the studies were really very bad quality you know you cannot deny that this is happening the more mainstream even mainstream um media like that danish denmark tv too uh, uh published you know a documentary about the adverse effects of an HPV vaccine. So that way, you know, it was it was it was undeniable. They could not, you know, criticize that. You know, they were like, yeah. <laughs> so I think, you know, even though it is very discouraging, you know, I think um it can get into the public awareness in a appropriate way as more people speak again, you know, speak about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I notice it's it's almost become like the um the smoking debate or discussion or whatever you want to call it where um <clears throat> for uh for vaccines it, I think for a while it was, you know, and I like to argue that it's a question of choice. You know, so okay, if you want to get vaccinated that's fine. If I don't, that's fine. You know, should we should we shouldn't we just be able to be comfortable with each other's choices because isn't that the whole you know, push of like kind of the modern liberal society is that everybody gets to choose whatever they want to do. Um, but no, because they say that, you know, if you're not vaccinated, you're going to get everybody else sick. And it's just like the smoking mm-hmm. thing. It's like for a long time, it was just vices or vices. And if you had one, that was your choice and it didn't hurt other people. But now, you know, if you're smoking 30 feet down the sidewalk from somebody else, they, they think that you're going to give them lung cancer. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I mean, it's it's crazy. And I still yeah. think that the debate should be left up to choice. I mean, honestly, like, that that is kind of what I'm about. If somebody wants to get vaccinated, I mean, I don't agree with that, and I think you're hurting yourself, but okay. But whatever you want to do, you know. But, you know, like, don't uh, don't come and attack me for saying that I don't want to get it. Yeah. Well, that, that's the programming right there. I mean, they had, they had to find a way to, um, you know, because, you know, any logical person would look at it that way, right? You are, you know, you are free to make your own choices, um, your medical choices, what you consume. So, therefore, uh, you know, I, I should be fine with your choices because they're not affecting me. Well, they have to spin it in such a way that your choices are affecting them, that your choices um, are putting them in danger in some way. And I think it's good to draw, like, a, a, draw a parallel with the smoking thing. Because, you know, the, the smoking thing, really, it doesn't make any sense for me to uh, be against somebody else smoking. Because it's just like, you know what, that's your choice, you can do that. But it has been spun in such a way that suddenly whatever choices you're making aren't just affecting you. They're affecting everybody else, which is bullshit. But that's that's the way it's spun. That's the, the how efficient the programming is. It's exactly the same with uh, with the herd immunity nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, if you just think about that logically, I mean, it, it it really doesn't make sense. I mean, if everyone's vaccinated and you have one person who's not vac- vaccinated, if the vaccines actually work, then that w- that one person's not not going to be able to transmit the, yeah. <laughs> transmit the the virus or the you know the disease anyway. But um, I think you're right, yeah. Doug. I think it, it it's uh, if if they can uh, if it, they can implant that fear. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's the fear that that is really the the driving factor mm-hmm. as to why people are so um yeah why why they try to determine the needs of others and tell them tell them what they should and shouldn't be doing you know mm-hmm. well I think on that note too it it really it puts doubt in people's minds you know like especially 
with the the vaccines for children, you know, people who don't even have children have a very strong stance on it. And, you know, if if they're not even really faced with that choice, why are they concerned? But it's, it puts, it puts that, that little worm in their brain, like, what's the big Mm. deal? Why, you know, there's actually a really good article that I recommend to our listeners. And it's got a video too by Barbara Lowe Fisher, and she's done a lot of work in this area, but it's called the, uh, are you ready? The vaccine culture war in America. And um, I've watched most of her videos and and she's really fired up in this video and kind of speaking to what Tiffany said, this whole idea about religious belief and um, in her vaccine culture war myth number four, she says science trumps religious beliefs. So religious exemption to vaccination should be eliminated. The attack on Americans with religious or spiritual beliefs is central to the political agenda driving this cultural war. Fellow citizens who do not believe there is a God are demanding that those who have faith in God be required to place the same faith in science and doctors. There is a big difference between fallible human beings and God, but some do not understand this difference. Yeah. Well, never mind that the science is completely corrupt. And that, uh, you know, if anybody was actually looking at the real science, they'd come to a very different conclusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's the point. Yeah. Well, again, it's this uh, <clears throat> kind of like we were talking about before, the the authoritarian complex, the authoritarian follower complex. You know, like I could argue that your belief in, you know, the rightness of these authority figures hurts me. You know, like so, you yeah. should you should not believe in them because you're you're hurting me now because they're hurting me. Yeah. <laughs> Secondhand authoritarianism. <laughs> yeah. It's like maybe you know, kind of like what we were talking about the WHO earlier on. Maybe we could get like believing the WHO classified as a mental illness in the DSM. <laughs> <laughs> the vaccine to treat it. <laughs> Yeah. That will be the day. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's. Uh, I guess let's move on to one of our other topics here. Um, and I know we had talked before the show that uh, uh, Elliot was going to tell us a little bit about uh, crickets. Is that it? <laughs> <laughs> on a more light topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can do. Um, there's a recent UK report, uh, well, actually, this is the article on SOP, and um, it's called Meaty Propaganda. UK report says creepy, crawly critters should be on the menu as a source of protein. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, this is a, it's a new report, and um, I think it's called the Waste and Resources Action Programme. And... Um, yeah, it's basically, um, it's, I think it's coming up with a, a recommendation. What they're suggesting is um, is basically to move, is to um, basically move towards more processed meat um, as they can be produced using far less energy and resources than intensively farming animals. Um, processed meat uses 99% less land to produce and and emit 96% greenhouse gases, less greenhouse gases. So um, they're saying that we are in danger of, by 2020 or 2020, 
um, the land that is available to us that is um, productive from an agricultural perspective being pushed to its limits. So if we can find an alternative protein source that, that reduces the need for, the land, uh, for land use and land use change, then that's a really good thing to look for. So um, what, what they're trying to suggest is that we, um, we start to eat um, or start to incorporate um, uh, un untraditional, you could call them, <laughs> uh, untraditional foods. So things like locusts and crickets, um, I would guess maggots and uh, <laughs> that sort of thing. Very yummy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean they they they're high in protein, you know. But um, yeah, I wonder where this is coming from. Maybe they well, they followed they on the heels of that that who study where they said that red meat's going to give you cancer. But yeah. you know, you can't use the whole cow farts are going to kill us all argument to get people <laughs> to get yeah. people to eat great. bugs. I mean, they they yeah. compared it to, like, the spread of uh, eating sushi, like, that came out of Japan, like, in the 2000s. But there's a big difference between eating a spider and eating raw fish. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe they suggest that we eat ticks, you know, so they can transmit Lyme disease easier. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I love the last line of this article. Oh, oh, yeah, I was just about to say that. Go ahead, Jonathan. Go ahead. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, well, it says, um, yeah, it says, the group's report echoes thoughts outlined on the in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report on climate change published last year. So basically, they go ahead to say, um, the IPCC sees, said that it is essential the human race's appetite for meat is curbed to prevent rising global temperatures. Oh my god. <laughs> 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 yeah. So um yeah, I I think um I think it's possible that we're gonna be seeing this quite a lot more. Um like as as I think it was Tiffany who just said, um with that art, uh, with the with the report published by the Who um regarding red meat and um and now you've got you've got these sorts of recommendations by um organizations international organizations um i think um yeah it's not so far fetched you know uh, they they talk about cricket flour here how it's been adopted um as uh, as a source of protein in the us and yeah. um i mean in other countries uh, to be honest when i was in thailand you know they used to eat a lot of um a lot of these sorts of these these cr critters but um, I, I never tried it myself. I wouldn't mind that. <laughs> yeah, were they a delicacy, yeah. like something you had on the side, like French fries, or were they the main course? <laughs> well, um, it it was more of a novelty sort of thing. But um, yeah. we did we did some voluntary work on um on a farm, and the the guy the guy was Thai, um, who we stayed with. But um, he, he didn't have a lot of money, so he couldn't afford much fish or much meat. He grew his own vegetables. And um, and what he tended to do was sort of um, wander off into the forest and come back with a big plastic bag full of these, um, you know, sort of grub-type maggot things. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, he, what he used to do is put some spices, like uh, some salt, some pepper, maybe some coriander. I guess you could play around with it a little bit. And then uh, I think he used to sort of uh, bake them 
and then they go crispy. <laughs> but uh, he used to really like them. I was a little bit um, a little bit scared to try them at the time. But, yeah. but I'm you know, sure if he had his good. choice to eat fish and meat, he wouldn't be out picking up grubs in the forest. <laughs> yeah. But they want us well, all to exactly. be grubbing around in the forest and eating maggots and crickets and stuff. Yeah, that's exactly. how amazing one day, are. you know. <laughs> Well, I work at a at a health food store, and um, we got a sample sent to us at one point that were cricket protein bars. And you oh. know, I I kind of draw the line at the bug thing. Like I'm I'm like you know what I don't really I'm not like Elliot. I don't really have a curiosity about it. I'm kind of like I don't think that bugs. You know, that's that's the line that I'm not going to cross. But uh, a couple of people who like coworkers who I work with actually tried it, and uh, one guy actually like said that he's like well. It, it definitely has kind of like a crickety sort of aftertaste, and I have no idea what he meant by that. Um, and I don't really have enough curiosity to try it myself to find out. But uh, yeah, like it's it, you know this. It, it said in the article that you know it's oh the cricket flower has already been adopted in the U.S. Well, I mean I think that's a bit of a stretch. You know, it's kind of a novelty food right now where people are kind of like oh yeah I'll try it. You know, like I'll try anything. But, uh, you know, I, to say it's been adopted, like, I really don't think you've got people who are incorporating this into a major part of their diet at this point. Well, it makes you oh, wonder, um, it makes you wonder, what, are, are they going to slowly try to, um, you know, try to stop people from eating red meat, you know, in the future? Is it going to be illegal? Sorry, carry on, Gabby. No, that's what I was thinking too. You know, maybe it's not going to be legal. Or there's going to be food shortages, and that's about mm-hmm. it. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting it to point out. The, it will change the meaning of a bug out bag. <laughs> 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 Let them eat crickets. <laughs> I, I think it's really yeah, kind of interesting to point out that what's being emphasized here is that it's a oh, it's a good source of protein. You know. There's there we have to worry about this kind of protein shortage, but it doesn't say anything about fat. And I mean, I you know that's that's just indicative of the environment that we live in right now and how fat is still being demonized. But uh, you know, if you had a diet that primarily relied on insects for uh, for your protein source, you're not getting that fat along with it, that necessary saturated fat, monounsaturated fat. I mean, bugs are incredibly low in fat. So, I mean, it's kind of a way to push people onto a more, um, you know, the politically correct diet, which is like low uh, or non-existent in animal protein and high in vegetables and now bugs as well. Oh, you know, you, you don't get a good protein source from uh, beans and rice, so uh, just uh, supplement it with these crickets. <laughs> they will keep all the meat and all the fat. People. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree that the idea that it's catching on is is kind of bunk. I mean, I, I'm looking here on, I googled uh, cricket flour, um, and there is quite a bit of, of cricket powder and cricket flour for sale, but it's quite expensive. Anyway, $15 a pound, $20, $20 a pound. Um, so the idea that it's going to replace uh, meat, I think, is kind of silly. I mean, just from an economic perspective. But, you know, mm-hmm. what we were talking about earlier with the global warming thing, that that kind of makes me laugh, not just because I personally disagree with that assessment, but also because if you look at the way meat is digested with enzymes in the gut versus the way vegetable matter is digested with bacteria, so vegetable matter actually rots in your gut, whereas meat does not. Um, mm. And you produce a lot more gas when you eat more vegetables. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually the other way around. <laughs> 
<laughs> Humanity <laughs> to blame after all. <laughs> yeah. So what you're saying, Jonathan, is that you shouldn't be a vegetarian to to save the planet from global warming. Exactly. <laughs> that is exactly what I'm saying. Very good point. <laughs> Although I think Durian Ryder would disagree with me. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that guy's a freak. Yeah, I don't know if our listeners are familiar with him, but we won't go into that. But if you are curious, look up Durian Ryder on YouTube and have a laugh at that. I recommend that you don't. <laughs> is that the guy who the Australian guy who foams at the mouth? Yeah, yeah, that's yes, good. yeah, yeah. Militant veganism doesn't even begin to explain it. No, <laughs> and isn't that an interesting kind of thing? I mean, I, I personally, I don't really know very many militant carnivores. I mean, yeah. I, I, okay, I know, I know a couple like old, old world kind of hunters who are a little bit psycho and they really like to shoot things. <laughs> you get that, you know, you get that in a rural area. That's pretty, you know, pretty much anywhere. But as far as like people being really militant about you must eat meat, I, I haven't heard it. No, I think people are glad because that just means more meat for them. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Well, it's kind of like the difference between, like, respecting choice versus not respecting choice, which we've kind of, you know, been uh, talking about a little bit before. You know, the whole politically correct diet, the whole veganism thing kind of relies on the idea that your food choices affect the rest of us, you know. And, I mean, the fact of the matter is veganism does affect the rest of us, too, because reliance on agriculture is basically destroying this planet. But, uh, you know, you still don't see very many militant um, anti-agriculturalists out there. So it's it, it really kind of says something about the state of the brains of people who are uh, who are relying on these diets. Yep. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing too. I mean, I, 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 most of our listeners are probably aware of the book The Vegetarian Myth by Lear Key. Um, but if you have not read it, uh, check it out. It's very good, and it's actually also in an audio book on uh, on Audible. If you do the audio book thing. Um, and it, it's very good. And she talks about that, you know, specifically about how the process of agriculture is precisely what is destroying the planet. It's destroyed the um, the biodiverse uh, systems that, you know, supported a wide range of life and uh, clear-cutting and uprooting and destroying, you know, thousands of acres of land to, to grow a monocrop like corn or soy um, is wiping out the systems that have supported this planet for thousands of years um you know so while we see modern agriculture as this kind of boon for civilization it, it's really not um it's really messing things up so yeah and i mean lear is a pretty good a good example uh because you know she's uh, somebody who is making these arguments um but to, you would never call her kind of like a rabid pro carnivore or anything like that like she's no. not uh you know, degrading the opposition or anything like that. She comes at it from a very empathetic perspective. And I think right there you can see, you know, the difference in approach. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's... extremely well-rounded. Sorry, John, carry on. No, no, I I agree. She's extremely well-rounded, and it's it's really important to be empathetic with people. I mean, in pretty much anything that you do, you don't want to be a doormat, um, but you also do want to be empathetic. So... You know, if somebody is doing something, I, I think, you know, first of all, if somebody's doing something that you disagree with, if it's not hurting you, then just leave them alone. 
you know, but if you get into a discussion about it, um, you know, be open, be empathetic. Be like, hey, this is what I found out in my research. What do you think? You know, and you'd be surprised. To, and I think probably some of our listeners have had the same experience where you can be completely conciliatory and completely respectful and empathetic and approach somebody in a discussion about, like, say, eating meat versus being, like, vegan and watch them get more and more and more angry to the point mm-hmm. where, like, they would just shoot you if they had a gun, you know. <laughs> <laughs> And you're like, no, I'm just trying to have a discussion here. So, I don't know, it, it's an interesting thing. It's hard to talk with people about these issues, just like we were talking about with vaccines. You know, it's like the old adage that you that you don't talk about politics or religion at the dinner table. Now we have to add mm-hmm. a bunch more stuff to that list, like vaccines and diet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, it's, I think some people, uh, they ask the question as well, but I, it seems as if they don't really want to know the answer. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, I think it's also important, and it's it's considerate to um, to try and determine whether they're really asking you, like, hey, why, why are you eating that food? You know, so mm-hmm. they see you eating a fat bomb or something. <laughs> before before I used to say, well, this is a fat bomb. It's made of this and that and that. Whereas now I just say, well, you could call it kind of like a custard, yeah. and then leave it leave it at that. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I eat it because it's yummy. I found the same thing I found the same thing with um, with smoking too uh, actually this was about six months ago now but I had an eye-opening conversation with a guy who was a doctor and uh, mm. we were at this event and I said I'm going to go out and have a smoke and he was like oh no you shouldn't be smoking you know and which I get you know um, so I, I just kind of calmly said, well, if you're curious, I, I get this whole leaf tobacco from a farm. It's not processed. It's it's just air cured. Um, you know, I roll it with natural papers. Um, I don't use filters that have acetate in them and all these kind of things. And I explained the, the process, the, what I think is a well thought out process that I've gone through about what I smoke and how. And um, he was like, oh, well, all right. Like, you know, okay, it sounds like you thought about this. And he actually ended up agreeing with me that, um, you know, that that was essentially better than smoking like camels, Marlboros, uh, mm-hmm. things like that, that are, that are basically not tobacco. Um, so it was a really interesting discussion. And I've had a similar discussion a few times since then with different people and just kind of calmly explained that, like, look, you know, you'd be really surprised at the difference between this mass-marketed, mass-produced um, pseudo tobacco that's in commercial cigarettes versus what real tobacco is actually like. Yeah. Uh, but but it, it, that's, I, I have had those conversations, but it's also kind of a minority. I mean, it's, it's hard to have an actual discussion with somebody about smoking because as soon as you say that you, you smoke, you are, you are now, you have the label of a smoker and everything yeah. goes along with that, you know? Yeah. So, Well, um, let's see, I get down off my soapbox about tobacco. <laughs> <laughs> um, shall we go to uh, to Zoya's segment here? Zoya has a, a, a good uh, pet segment for us today. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good time to break off to that. So let me find it here. Um, this is about best types of food uh, for your pets. Um so, and it's a little bit longer. We've got about 20 minutes here, and there's also going to be a clip from a, a lecture that she's included here as well. 
Um, so let's go to Zoya for the pet health segment, and we will be back after this. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya and today we are going to talk about pet food again. In the previous segments I already mentioned the damage dry food causes and how important it is to feed your pet with pet a species appropriate diet. But let's be realistic, sometimes owners can't switch their pets to completely raw diet or they refuse to touch it. It can happen especially with cats. Some pets can eat only cooked food, otherwise they get serious digestive problems. Sometimes the budget is scarce and not everyone can afford raw meat, even the cheapest parts or organ meat. Sometimes there is only specific, a specific type of food available. So recently Dr. Karen Becker released a video where she gives a very interesting and thorough description of pet foods, ranking from best to worst. I'm sure it will provide a better understanding and help uh, with uh, deciding about the best food you can offer your pet in your current situation. Enjoy. Hi, this is Dr. Karen Becker. Five years ago, I published a list of 13 types of pet foods ranked best to worst. That video remains one of the most popular here at Mercola Healthy Pets, as well as on YouTube. There have been a few updates I wanted to relate to you, so I thought it was time to release a sequel or a new revised list. First and foremost, when you're deciding what to feed your dog or cat, it's important to remember that your pet is a carnivore. His genetic makeup and internal workings remain essentially the same as his wild carnivorous ancestors. Your dog or cat can't move his jaws side to side. It's called lateral mandibular swing, and they can't do that. Dogs and cats' mouths only work up and down. Carnivores grab their prey, tear it into chunks with their sharp interlocking teeth, and gulp it down. They do not chew. Omnivorous mammals, like humans, have wide flat molars designed for chewing, and vegetarian animals have lots of wide flat molars designed for excessive mastication or a lot of chewing. In fact, some animals like ruminants or cows actually chew their food twice. All carnivores, including dogs and cats, also have very short digestive tracts compared to vegetarian animals. And this is because the wild carnivores uh, eat foods, of course, that are heavily contaminated with pathogens. They're not removing the colon or they're not removing uh, any parts of, of the, their prey's body that could have bacteria laden in their system. So their digestive tracts are designed to get foods in and out very quickly. They're not designed to ferment foods like vegetarians. The ancestral diet of a carnivore includes lots of variety and seasonal variability because certain prey was more available at certain times of year than the other. So there was actually a lot of variety in the diet. They thrive on consuming fresh, living, and whole foods, but not clean foods. But their diet was, in fact, moisture-dense, which means a lot of water. The prey was primarily water, about 70%. It was high in protein and minerals and moderate in fat. In the wild, you won't see any obese bunnies out there. So when we think about feeding a dog or cat, it's usually moderate to, to low fat, but great quality fats and very low carbohydrate. The only carbohydrates wild cats consumed was what was naturally found in their prey's GI tracts and the occasional nibbling of grasses for added fiber and enzymes. Wild dogs and wolves, being scavenging carnivores, don't have nearly the perfectionistic food standards of cats. They do catch and kill and consume whole prey, but they also consume carrion, which are dead animals, and you'd never catch a cat going anywhere near anything dead. 
Dogs also will eat poo, grass, berries, other plant matter. In fact, research shows that up to 30% of the stomach contents of wolves contain plant matter. Commercial pet food is a relatively recent concept and has been around only about 100 years. And since then, major pet food companies have produced most of their products using a base of corn, wheat, or rice. Recognizing feeding carnivores an abundance of grains fed cancer and created fat diabetic animals, the industry turned to grain-free dry foods, which absolutely reignited the kibble industry, only this time with inappropriate levels of high glycemic starch like potatoes and pea flour. Now trendier sources of carbs are also being introduced to the pet food industry, such as lentils and garbanzo beans. In addition to increasing the carb content beyond which species appropriate, Legumes contain lectins, which are molecules that can create GI inflammation and irritation. Fortunately for pet owners, dogs and cats are among the most resilient animals on the planet. They're able to eat foods that they were never designed to eat without dying. Degeneration does occur in these animals as a result of inappropriate nutrition, but sudden death doesn't happen. This is actually how we've been able to deceive ourselves into believing that convenient pet foods are good for dogs and cats because they don't immediately die of malnutrition. However, in my opinion, we've created dozens of generations of nutritionally weakened animals that suffer from degenerative diseases linked to nutritional deficiencies. The bottom line is that for 99.9% .9 of the time on earth, dogs and cats have absolutely consumed their natural diet, which is an ancestral diet of fresh foods. For 0.1% of the time, animals have consumed highly processed foods. On top of being biologically inappropriate, we add a lot of synthetic vitamins and minerals to meet basic nutritional requirements and then heat the food to very high temperatures, which at best denatures proteins and decreases nutrient value, but at worst introduces carcinogens to your pet's body on a daily basis. Two potent cancer-causing substances are created when dry pet food is made by the extrusion process. When protein is extruded, carcinogenic heterocyclic amines are created. The byproduct of extruding starches are acrylamides, both which are known to cause cancer in dogs and cats. This is a little scary if you think about the fact that most pets on the planet are eating dry food for their entire lives and the fact that the cancer rate is skyrocketing in companion animals. Feeding dogs and cats inappropriate ingredients for several generations has created significant metabolic and physiologic stress, and convenient pet foods have really been the root of the problems of most of the inflammatory processes and degenerative diseases that plague today's dogs and cats. A biologically correct diet for a carnivore is a high moisture, high protein, moderate fat, and low carbohydrate. The vast majority of pet foods on the market today are the exact opposite. They're low moisture, and low to moderate, poor quality protein and fat, and high in starch or carbs. All that to say, our goal is to mimic the ancestral diet of dogs and cats as closely as you can afford to do. And my list today is based off of these species appropriate guidelines. As many of you know, I'm a huge advocate of feeding pets an unprocessed diet, as this is exactly what they were designed to eat in the wild. Now, I know some of you might be saying, I would also like to eat an all-organic, free-range, non-GMO, fresh food diet. I just can't afford to. And, of course, not only do I get this, my recommendation is that you feed yourselves and your pets as much unprocessed fresh food as you can afford to do. Some of my clients also um, can't afford to feed an all-fresh, living, raw food diet. 
So what they do is they offer snacks. They offer fresh food snacks for their companions. So their pets, let's say, eat an entirely processed diet for their meals, but they use what's number one on my list for their pets' snacks. And don't knock that. Actually, research does show that some healthy food is better than no healthy food at all. So if you're capable of just using fresh foods as snacks, you're still providing excellent options for your dog or cat. Out of 14 meals a week, some of my clients can afford to feed two or four of those meals in an unprocessed form, and that's a great suggestion. Some clients can actually afford to do 50-50, so they're feeding one meal of processed food a day and one fresh food meal a day. If that's what you're capable of doing, that's wonderful, but wherever you're at, don't panic. What I recommend is that you work towards providing the best food you can afford to feed. So starting at number one is no surprise. It's a nutritionally balanced, raw, homemade diet. This is the best food you could feed your dog or cat. It's very important not to wing it when preparing your pet's meals at home. I say this because when Steve Brown and I analyze many of the homemade and prey model diets out there, they fall frighteningly short on trace minerals, antioxidants, including um, really important nutrients like manganese, magnesium, vitamin E and D, copper, zinc, iron, choline, and essential fatty acids. Nutritional deficiencies over time will cause degenerative diseases in pets. Additionally, if the diet doesn't have proper fat or calcium to phosphorus balance, it can actually cause a myriad of health problems, especially in growing animals. So it's critically important that you know your diet is balanced. The great thing about homemade raw diets is that you get to handpick the ingredients. So if your dog is allergic to chicken, you can pick a different protein source. You also get to know deep in your heart that you've washed the veggies, you know that there's no pesticides on them, you've seen the quality of the meats that you're going to be feeding, and this should provide an enormous peace of mind because it's becoming increasingly more difficult to find ethical pet food companies that use locally sourced or even U.S. grown ingredients. With homemade food, you're in complete control of every ingredient that enters your pet's body. And of course, Raw food is just that. It's raw, and it's unadulterated. So, your, so it contains all of the enzymes and phytonutrients that are typically destroyed when processing occurs. Homemade food also gives you the flexibility to include a lot of nutritional variety in your pet's diet. So you can buy seasonal fruits and veggies uh, that are on sale. You can use produce that comes from your local supermarket, or you can certainly use produce from your garden or local, local farmer's market as well. Number two on my list is a nutritionally balanced cooked homemade diet. This option gives you all of the benefits I just discussed, minus the benefits of the free enzymes and phytonutrients found in living foods. Interestingly, there are a few nutrients that are actually more bioavailable when cooked, such as lycopene. Some animals prefer cooked food, some animals prefer warm food, and some clients prefer to cook the food. And there are also some medical conditions, such as recent GI surgery or pancreatitis, where cooked food is just a smart idea for your pet. Number three on my list is commercially available balanced raw food diets. Again, it's critically important that the diet be balanced and that you should be quite aware that there are a lot of foods on the market out there that are not nutritionally complete. These foods should say right on the label for supplemental or intermittent feeding. I don't recommend feeding unbalanced foods without adding in the missing nutrients or pets can have nutrition-related medical problems in the future. Commercially available balanced raw food diets are found in the freezer section of small or privately owned upscale pet boutiques. And actually now some big box stores are also starting to carry a larger selection of frozen raw diets. You can also find an excellent selection online. There are new raw foods entering the market every month with a variety of different attributes. Veggie, bone, and fat content vary widely between products. Commercial diets range from 0 to 40% roughage or veggies. 
and actually that impacts the amount of synthetic vitamins and minerals that must be added to the diet to make it nutritionally complete. The veggie content will also impact digestive and stool health. So if you have a dog that suffers from chronic constipation, you would want to choose a food with a higher veggie content. Commercially available raw food diets range from low fat to high fat. If you have an obese cat, you would obviously pick a low fat food for your cat. But if you have a German short hair pointer that runs lean and loses weight quickly, you choose a higher fat food for that dog. Ground bone, bone meal, or a bone meal equivalent mix will be added to raw diets for mineral balance. Some raw foods contain bone pieces that are actually pretty big, in fact, too big to be safely cooked. So if you choose to buy a commercially available raw food and you want to cook it, you need to make sure it's safe to do so. Some raw food companies pride themselves on only using happy, healthy, grass-fed animals and organic veggies, while other companies use animal meats and produce imported from China and other countries, as well as factory-farmed, GMO-fed animals raised in feedlots here in the U.S. Some companies use whole foods to meet the majority of their diet's trace mineral requirements, while some other companies use very few ingredients and actually rely on AFCO vitamin and mineral premixes to meet their nutritional requirements. Another factor to consider is how the raw food is formulated. Meat-based foods, like raw diets, are almost always calorically dense and should be formulated on a caloric basis, not a dry matter basis. This is a more demanding method of formulating and comparing the formulation on a dry matter basis compared to caloric basis shows that raw foods formulated on a dry matter basis actually fall significantly short of nutrients. It's easy to tell if your raw food is formulated on a caloric basis because if you flip it over, the nutrients are listed as a gram or milligram of nutrient per 1,000 kilocalories. Those foods formulated on a dry matter basis will have nutrients listed as a percentage of dry matter basis. I only recommend choosing raw foods that are formulated on a caloric basis. How companies manage potentially pathogenic bacteria is another consideration, which ranges from doing nothing to batch testing, UV treatments, ozone and fermentation treatments to HPP or high pressure pasteurization. The great thing about this sector of the pet food industry being the fastest growing category is that you will be able to find a food that fits your ethical and financial parameters with the convenience of not, of not having to make the food yourself. The downfall is, of course, you're obviously paying for the luxury of having someone else do the hard work for you. And like all pet food companies, you'll need to investigate the company you're buying from to make sure you're feeding the correct product for your pet's specific nutrition and medical goals. Number four on the list is dehydrated or freeze-dried raw diets. If you can't or won't feed fresh raw food, a good alternative is the dehydrated freeze-dried category that's been reconstituted with water. These diets are shelf-stable, so they're super convenient, and to make them biologically correct, all you have to do is just add water. Dehydrated or freeze-dried raw diets haven't been processed at high temperatures, and in many cases, the nutrient value has been retained minus a balanced fatty acid profile. Remember, the definition of raw food means it will spoil if it's left at room temperature. So these foods, by definition, are not the same as raw food diets, but they can be a great choice for people on the move, people that are camping with their dogs or cats, or pets that go to daycare or need to be boarded. It's really the next best thing to a truly raw, fresh food diet. Make sure the brand that you select is nutritionally balanced for all life stages. Number five is a commercially available cooked or refrigerated food. This is a new category of pet food that is exploding in the marketplace. Obviously, the food has been gently heat processed, so the proteins have been slightly denatured, but the moisture content is excellent, and the food is fresher, so the nutrient content is better than the other choices that will be lower on this list. 
you'll find these foods in the refrigeration section of pet stores and now actually many human grocery stores as well. The quality of the raw materials going into the cooked refrigerated pet food ranges from absolutely terrible to excellent. So you do need to do your research when you're choosing brands. Number six on the list is human grade canned food. If the website doesn't say the ingredients are human grade, then they're not. Pet food made with human grade ingredients is a great deal more expensive than feeding feed grade or animal grade canned food. These foods will typically be found in boutiques and usually small independent retailers that really focus on great quality foods. Number seven, super premium canned food. These products are typically found at big box stores like Petco and PetSmart or in your traditional veterinarian's office. These foods contain feed grade ingredients, which in parenthesis means foods not approved for human consumption, but the moisture content is much more biologically correct than dry food and many have excellent protein, fat, fiber, carb ratios. So I place this above the next category on the list, which is number eight, human grade dry food. Dry food is not biologically correct in terms of moisture content compared to the ancestral diet. Additionally, even grain-free dry foods contain unnecessary starch that can cause inflammation issues in your pet. Human grade is very important because the ingredients have passed quality inspection, which means it doesn't contain poor quality or rendered unidentified or mystery proteins. But as I mentioned, unlike dry food that has been baked, which it will clearly say on the label baked, you should assume, if it doesn't say that, that it's been extruded, which means you're probably feeding a small amount of carcinogens on a daily basis. Yuck. Number nine is super premium dry food found at big box stores and your local conventional veterinary clinic. These extruded dry foods are made with feed grade ingredients not approved for human consumption, but are still usually naturally preserved. Most of these foods contain added grains or starches, which are not species appropriate and may harbor the risk of mycotoxins. Number 10 on the list is grocery store brand canned food. This food choice is ranked below super premium dry foods because even though the moisture content is more biologically appropriate, these foods usually contain high levels of unnecessary grains and synthetic toxic preservatives such as BHA, BHT, and ethoxyquin. Number 11 on the list is grocery store brand dry foods, which has all of the same issues as grocery store brand canned foods minus the moisture. Number 12 on the list is semi-moist pouch food, which is really bad. The reason this type of food is so far down the list is because in order to make the food semi-moist, we have to add an ingredient called propylene glycol. And this is an undesirable preservative that actually is the second cousin to ethylene glycol, which is antifreeze. And while propylene glycol is approved for use in pet foods, it's unhealthy for dogs and cats to consume. And number 13, last on the list, is an unbalanced homemade diet, raw or cooked. Dead last on the list for good reason is the idea that some pet owners believe that they can offer their dog or cat, let's say, a chicken breast and some veggies and call it a day. A lot of people I know are caring but quite uneducated and they're feeding things like chicken wings and backs and necks with some cheap ground beef to a growing puppy. Yes, the food is homemade and yes, it's fresh, which is great. However, the food is nutritionally unbalanced, which can cause significant irreversible and potentially fatal health problems, including endocrine abnormalities, skeletal issues, and organ degeneration as a result of deficiencies in calcium, trace minerals, and omega fatty acids. These diets are the reason all homemade and most raw diets are feared and loathed by conventional veterinarians. We see animals that have been harmed by people feeding unbalanced diets, and it's heartbreaking. Most importantly, it's entirely preventable. So homemade diets must be done right or not done at all.
If the diet you're feeding your dog or cat falls into one of the lower quality categories, don't despair. Most people are feeding their pets lesser quality foods because they either can't afford to feed a better food or they simply don't know what constitutes good nutrition for their pet. If you discover that your pet is eating from the lower half of the list, set a goal to feed better quality foods now that you know can make a difference or when you can afford to feed a more nutritious diet. Everyone's pet food can be found in one of these categories. I encourage you to figure out where the diet you're serving right now falls in the list and then strive for improvement by feeding more nourishing species-appropriate foods. sharing that with us. Sorry, that was a really good lecture. Um, quite some important points there to be made. Uh, I can definitely speak to the, the benefit as well of the, the raw food diet for our pets. Um, I've seen some amazing differences. We recently got back onto it after going off of it for a while, which was a mistake, I admit, uh, but we are kind of back on track now. And uh, my dog uh, particularly has these um, lipid deposits, they call, the vet calls them lipid tumors. They're uh, um, benign, uh, but they are, you know, like they're like up under armpits. And since we've got to the raw meat diet, they started to shrink, and it's like completely noticeable. She has more energy. Uh, she's hmm. lost weight. So the difference is, is pretty drastic between that and, you know, what you call kibble. Hmm. So um, <clears throat> let's see, today for our recipe, we're just going to wrap up the show here today because we are coming up on the uh, on our end time. Um, I wanted to revisit a book. Uh, it, was, uh, uh, it was a couple of weeks ago. I did a recipe out of this book, Beyond Bacon, for Huntsman Stew. And uh, I'd like to do another one out of here. And I also uh, wanted to read the foreword to the book, which is written by Joel Salatin from Polyface Farm which probably quite a few of our listeners are familiar with. Uh, he's also in the film, uh, in the film Food, Inc., um, and, and a number of other documentaries. Um, and he's kind of a proponent of the, uh, you know, the small farm uh, industry, which is, start, is starting to take hold again. So <clears throat> this is kind of funny, and it's, it's an introduction to the book. So if you're curious to look it up, uh, it's called Beyond Bacon, Paleo Recipes That Respect the Whole Hog. And it's really a great book. It's got all, like, uh, diagrams of the pig as well as uh, writing about um, where to find whole pig and that kind of thing. So he says, on our farm, we love vegetarians because when they find out about the health and ecological benefits of pastured livestock, they go through a binge period to make up for lost time. <laughs> as a farmer, as a farmer direct marketing our pastured pork to individuals and restaurants, I'm keenly aware that a pig is more than bacon. Many people don't realize that. In our fast food, simple menu culture, a few people think about the parts not posted on the number one or number two options. As farmers, though, we desperately need to sell the whole pig from snout to tail, or we develop a mind-numbing and economically devastating inventory problem. On a hog carcass of 200 pounds, only about 25 pounds is belly muscle, commonly known as bacon. That means 175 pounds of non-bacon, or as Stacy and Matt, the authors of the book, suggest, uh, beyond bacon. Perhaps the most valuable act that any eater can do to facilitate successful local food systems 
and vibrant pasture-based farms is to eat slightly blemished vegetables and fruit and to eat all the parts of the animal. Today's techno-sophistication offers the illusion that a simplified diet is acceptable. While ecologists preach diversity for healthy environments, too many Americans deny their own digestive flora and fauna the dietary diversity for optimum health. Whenever I give a presentation about ecological integrity and local food systems, people ask, what can I do? This question has its ancillary issues regarding price, feeding the world, and culinary ignorance. All of these issues solve themselves when the answer to what can I do is the simple admonition, do it yourself, or DIY. Um, that common acronym, known far and wide, enjoys enough support in car maintenance, house maintenance, education, and psychiatry to keep countless talk shows and blogs in business. How about DIY food preparation, processing, and packaging? This brilliant book brings the DIY mantra to pork. In a day of profound culinary fear and ignorance, this book offers a DIY map for all who aspire to participate in the integrity food movement but are too afraid to start. The art and skill of healthy eating can be regained by marrying the ecologically sound farm to the delightful tastes and textures of delectable dining. Uh, one final thought. Uh, Stacy and Matt's healing journey began with a farm visit. Our farm, like all credible farms, does not have a no trespassing sign hanging at the farm entrance. We have an open-door policy, full disclosure, open source, call it what you will. But Beyond Bacon includes Beyond prepackaged, prepared processed foods. It includes Beyond typical vacation packages and entertainment venues. It includes visceral connections with foods starting at the farm. So that's Joel Salatin's forward to the book Beyond Bacon, which I really suggest uh, anybody who eats pork and is interested in kind of like making their own food at home uh, should get this book and check it out. It's It's really a huge uh, repository of information. So the recipe for today is, sounds a little weird, but you got to make it. It's, it's really incredible. Uh, it's called licorice sausage. <clears throat> um, so uh, it makes about eight patties. Uh, and what you want is a spice or a coffee grinder or a mortar and pestle. And what you need here is one tablespoon star anise, about five or six, um, about five or six points of star anise, or anise. I know people say different things there. Uh, one teaspoon of salt, one half teaspoon whole cloves, one half teaspoon of dried thyme, one quarter teaspoon coriander, one quarter teaspoon garlic powder, one quarter teaspoon white pepper, one quarter cup of ice water, and one pound of ground pork. So in a spice or coffee grinder using a mortar and pestle, Grind the anise, salt, cloves, thyme, coriander, garlic powder, and white pepper into a fine powder. Place the ice water in a large bowl and add the spice mixture. Stir and set aside for 15 minutes. Add the pork to the wet spice mixture and combine by hand, removing any remaining ice. Set the mixture aside and allow the flavors to combine for about 5 to 10 minutes. And then form the meat into patties of about 3 inches in diameter and then cook over medium heat in a large skillet for about four minutes per side or until the patties are cooked through with a crisp edge. So that is licorice sausage. And, of course, the licorice uh, smell and flavor comes from the anise. Um, and it's, it's really a well-rounded thing, although it sounds, if you're, uh, if you're a finicky eater, it might sound kind of funny, but I'd suggest that you try it out. And it sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah, anise is, a, is actually a really good uh, ingredient, and combined with the coriander, it's got a nice, like, bright flavor to it. So, yeah. Uh, so, it's so Jonathan, 
Um, with with that recipe, uh, you said the you said was that five five or six points of um, star anise. Oh, did we lose Jonathan here? Jonathan? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm here. Yeah. Oh, hey. <laughs> did you catch my question? I did, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's about it's oh, okay. about five or six points. Um, so they, does, they come in so does that mean... Little star shapes. Okay. Yeah, they about okay. five or six of, of, the, uh, of the actual little uh, stars of anise. You could also just go for a tablespoon of ground anise, if that's all you can find. Okay, thank you. I think the same thing with the cloves, too. The whole cloves are going to contain a lot more of the oil and the flavor, but if you can only find ground cloves, then go with that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, it's it's fun, um, especially, I don't know if anybody has, you know, if our listeners have played around with ground pork, um, I, for a long time, would just get ground pork and make patties, you know, and then have them, and that was good. But when you start combining different spice mixtures with ground pork and making your own sausage, uh, you can really come up with some fun things. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, I think that sounds like it's worth trying for sure. That sounds really good. Yeah. Um, I'll pull some more stuff out of this book as we as we go forward through other episodes of the show. I would like to do the head cheese recipe at some point, but I want to try making it first. <laughs> so I need to track down a pig head. <laughs> <laughs> We actually, because uh, we, we buy we buy pigs whole. We get them a lot cheaper. We get them from a local farmer, and we uh, we oh, can buy great. a whole pig for for really cheap. But um, but they always give us the head, and we don't know we we don't quite know what to do with it. <laughs> yeah. Now you know what to do. <laughs> I'll admit I'm a little bit reluctant to eat the pig's head, but um, yeah, if you can if you can get a good recipe for that, Jonathan, then um, yeah, we'll give it a go. You know, for sure, for sure. Yeah, we'll do that some other time, definitely. All right, well, that's uh, that's our show for today. We'd like to thank everybody for tuning in, and uh, thanks for our uh, chat participants. Um, and be sure to listen to the other. Uh, Saw Talk Radio shows um, The Truth Perspective tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern and Behind the Headlines on Sunday also at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, our show and theirs can all be found on the Sot Radio Network uh, channel on Blog Talk Radio. So if you search Blog Talk Radio for SOTT, you will find it. Uh, and we'll be back next week. I believe next week we're going to be talking about um, iodine and uh, iodine treatments, and we'll have as well a recipe for how to make your own Google's solution of iodine. So be sure to tune in for that. So have a great week, everybody, and we'll see you next Friday. Bye, everybody. Thanks, guys. Bye.